Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome AI and agricultural futurist Brian D. Colwell to the show. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. It's great to have you on the show, man. You have some awesome content on your site, BrianDcolwell.com, and uh, you share some fantastic stuff on Twitter, and that's where we met. And I just thought I'd reach out because there's lots of different views on AI and dystopian, utopian, what can it do as a friend or foe, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought you have a very scientific approach to that, and it, it draws on an industrial revolution shift and I thought we'd just open up really wide conversation on on your approach to AI in particular. Well, um, like as you said, I do have a little bit of a different approach to looking at um, artificial intelligence and disruptions and things like that. Um, my, my whole point is to look at the disruptions rather than look, look at the tech innovations. Everybody's really excited to look at the tech innovations, but I, I take a historic approach to the Industrial Revolution, this fourth Industrial Revolution, and I look at... Uh, the, the, the previous first, second, and third industrial revolutions where we had tech innovations that led to certain kinds of uh, industrial disruptions, then economic unrest, and then some some sort of warfare. And my, my whole um, investment thesis is preparing myself to take advantage of those disruptions. And AI, for sure, is one of the most pivotal uh, tech innovations that is is occurring in this fourth industrial revolution, really taking light in this fourth industrial revolution, um, and causing all sorts of disruptions along all sorts of industry uh, industries and lines. But in, uh, artificial intelligence it isn't really a new thing. Um, uh, it's been around for a long, long, long time. It's just just recently, though, in the last five years, that artificial intelligence has really stepped up in the form of machine learning, deep learning, cognitive intelligence, and uh, quantum computing now, um, and all kinds of other cool, exciting jargon that uh, have, have elevated AI to an actual usable uh, platform. Whereas before we had big data, we were collecting data, didn't know what to do with it. Machine learning takes that data and actually is able to make correlations between it so that we can make decisions based on that. Deep learning now, the next level above that says, hey, I can make those correlations and I can make the decisions on my own and figure out now what do I need to figure out to find the right answer. And now we have computers teaching themselves what they need to know and teaching each other, um, even, even down to creating their own languages so that they can communicate with each other. So it's a really exciting time for artificial intelligence. And in terms of disruptions that are going to occur, it's really open-ended to your imagination, I would say. And yeah. AI is definitely one of the two or three uh, most disruptive technologies coming. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned, like, so you're an advisor on AI invest, or investment, future investments uh, to your clients, etc. And what 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 right. are you what are you seeing that's really working? Where are you seeing is the hotspots? Yeah, I would say for sure that uh, most of the AI companies that are publicly traded are I don't find them super duper interesting for investment. They tend to focus on using artificial intelligence and machine learning to boost their ad revenues. And specifically, those would be companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and Amazon. They're very much into artificial intelligence and and, and have been for as long as it's been around um, and are definitely taking advantage of all the trends in artificial intelligence to, to capture a return on their, on their investment. Um, and uh, to boost investor returns. 
But again, that's kind of like an inside-the-box application of artificial intelligence using it to boost your ad revenue. Um, I specifically, for publicly traded companies, really like IBM. Um, I know Watson's been around for a while, and they hadn't really found a way to monetize it until the last couple years, the last year especially, where now you have artificial intelligence for IBM. Instead of going to the consumer they're going to businesses and getting to the consumer that way. So they have not only a different approach for how to get to the consumer with their artificial intelligence platform, but their application of the artificial intelligence is also different. So you have them using uh, artificial intelligence to help with taxes in H&R Block. You have them using artificial intelligence with healthcare to identify cancer treat, uh, cancers and, uh, uh, and things like that. So there's all kinds of application that they're using. And I really like the, the healthcare application for IBM going forward. And then the uh, one of the other technologies I really, really like going forward is uh, blockchain, which IBM also is very much involved in. So I like IBM for a couple couple ways, a couple reasons, and their applications for both blockchain and AI work together and are both outside the box. So it's pretty interesting investment. Although most of the artificial intelligence companies that are really, really interesting, the ones that are doing the really intense quantum, uh, quantum computing deep learning kinds of uh, applications, they're, they're still private companies and they're, uh, they're, they're very much um, undercover right now. So we would be looking for companies to buy those startups. So in that case, that would be like the IBM and the Google that would be buying those. So uh, my top pick, the one that I invest in personally is IBM. They're such an impressive company, aren't they? Because you, you talk about disruption and they were a company that was headed towards disruption, but they made a jump before they even got there. So they kind of foresaw this iceberg coming straight for them. And they actually just jumped and went after AI and leveraged the trust in the brand. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you say that. I'm 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 really excited that you know about their their story. And the argument for not investing in them is that they haven't completed their turnaround story. But at the same time, you know, and then, then people compare them to Microsoft and say Microsoft is further along in their turnaround story. But I, I think IBM has been disruptive since the beginning. They did, like you say. They have a, a period where they ha they saw the iceberg, they needed to make a shift, and they've been very strategic in leveraging their brand and their customer loyalty. Um, I really, really like also, just as a side note, one of the things I look at when I'm investing in companies, um, from a fourth industrial revolution standpoint, every company I invest in has to have some sort of social media presence, um, since social media is definitely the number one way to advertise and market your brand and your point of view. And IBM is all over social media. So I really appreciate that as well. You mentioned the fourth industrial revolution. I thought maybe perhaps we might touch on that because some people may not be familiar with what that is. Right. So um, just, just briefly, we had uh, the first industrial revolution was the late 18th to early 19th century where we had steam power. Um, the second industrial revolution was the late 19th to mid 20th century. That was the American age of invention where we had uh, electricity and uh, cars and the telephone and uh, the light bulb and things like that. Third Industrial Revolution was the second half of the 20th century where we had uh, the introduction of IT technologies and we had globalization that really led to a uh, 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 really led to like the demise of the middle class and in, in some of the developed nations. And then now we've come into this fourth industrial revolution where we, we see tech innovations like artificial intelligence in all of its forms, which are, uh, you know, machine learning, deep learning, cognitive computing. Uh, we have CVC cognitive cybersecurity, which is really exciting. Uh, Internet of Things, drones, blockchain, all the cryptocurrencies like Litecoin and Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, fintech. 
um, ag tech, med tech, biotech, all the techs, robotics, e-commerce has been around for a while, but really coming into itself now, wearable technology, mobile and social gaming, social media, nanoparticles, cybernetics, energy storage, smart cities, clean tech. There's so many exciting technologies for this fourth industrial revolution. And it's really all this next age bringing things together. Um, in what, what's bringing it all together really is artificial intelligence, because without artificial intelligence, none of it can really exist or communicate with each other. Yeah, and it's interesting, Brian, because when you think of that and you think of the demise of, say, retail or, or press or, you know, a lot of print, etc., or media. So you've seen this shift from the traditional media to to social media, or you're seeing a shift from from the bricks to clicks to Amazon, etc. So, so with yep. that comes this massive mindset change for employment. How do you see that all panning yep. out? Oh wow, yeah, and and it, and it's interesting that you bring up the employment standpoint because uh, the the employment view because I saw like I'm I'm actually. Um, a member of of I'm actually a member of this disruptive force with the fourth industrial revolution. I found my 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 skills as a financial planner becoming more and more irrelevant as time went on. As robo advisors and Schwab got more uh, more and more clients and Vanguard got bigger and bigger. So I, I sought out of several years ago to 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 reskill myself to become valuable again. Um, so what I did is I, I found social media and social media was the way that I was able to become an influencer in the fields that I understand and appreciate. And, um, and then also further, further my, my point of view, my, my thought process. So I would say, I would say for sure, uh, everybody is open to disruption at this point, professionals, blue collar workers, everybody artificial intelligence isn't going to be just a disruptive force for the blue collar worker uh recently in japan ibm came in and replaced 30 tax accountant jobs at a tax firm it was a small application right but if we make it a much larger application and think about what that could do it really opens it up to everybody everybody from doctors to garbage men are open um i would say anybody that moves anything from one place to another is yeah. open is open to having their job re- totally replaced by some sort of drone technology or robotics, and that's that's big. Anybody that moves anything from one place to another, whether it's a truck driver or uh, the guy who's making you a Starbucks or an or an airline pilot, yeah. it, it, they're all open to disruption. So the only way for us that we the only way for us to really stay ahead of this disruption is to take it is to understand where the disruptions are going to occur and to allocate our investments so that we can grow with that disruption, that we can take advantage of it. So uh, we want to actually be, uh, we want to actually kind of ride that disruptive wave. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. We just have to position ourselves, whether it's in our career or our portfolio or our home living situation, whatever it is, whatever we see the disruptions being from climate change to, uh, to, to robotics, we have to just make sure we understand what's going on, when it's coming, and then where we need to be. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. You, so you were proactive because I, I see this a lot, and we we all see it with, you know, a lot of companies who are like turkeys waiting for Christmas, and they're just actually not being proactive about it, and actually complaining and moaning, etc., and kind of going, "Rob, what's it going to take our jobs?" What? What's, yeah. You, and you, you, you obviously went and you, you went and upskilled yourself, and you you changed how you approach your role. But so many people aren't doing that. Like, what's the advice you can give people like that and and also perhaps people coming out of college 
I would say for anybody that is in college right now, I would say you probably don't need to finish college. Um, I would, I would hate, I hate having to say that. I know the the view right now is you can't get a job without a degree, except that that's not the case for coders and data scientists that have uh, experienced more than a degree. So I would say that the best thing anybody can do at this point is avoid avoid debt, avoid obligating yourself to something or somebody. And I would say debt takes all kinds of forms, whether it's credit cards, student loans, cars, houses, um, even the lease that you have for the place you're renting should be considered debt. That's why they take a credit score report. So the best way we can take advantage, uh, or the best way we can position ourselves, I think, beyond reskilling is to make sure that we are living within our means and living such that we have no debt. And that is a very important thing to consider when everybody else does have debt, when countries have the highest levels of debt they've ever had in their history, and with the U.S. dollar worth the least amount it's ever been in its history, um, we can definitely say that this is a period where we want to buck the trend of being massively leveraged. Okay, so so I'm going to avoid having debt, right? And that, then there's this school of thought that would say, you know, coding, learning to code, etc., is right. is going to be and that's tough because you know how many people really have the mindset or the time to sit down and teach themselves to code yeah so and 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 i i found that too i said hey i should learn how to code i'm going to teach myself python and i started looking at that and i said you know i can actually have a better return on my time if my time has value if I work with people that are data scientists and and can code python and, and help them promote their material. Yeah. Help them help them market their content. Or I write about artificial intelligence. I don't have to understand how to code to write about artificial intelligence, what's happening in the in the in the field. If I take a little bit more of a global view, and I think taking a little bit more of a global macro macroeconomic view of for all of this stuff, for, for all of these innovations and disruptions, is gonna be a much better way to look to look forward and to live. So I think everybody should think about even where they live being open to disruption. Think about whether changes, climate changes, changes in income, changes in job opportunities. Um, everything is open to change right now. And I think people should be very, very, very flexible going yeah. forward. You've touched on something there. So this is what I was getting at. So if if AI is is getting more and more empowered, so there's there's AI tools now who can code. Um, so there's tools out there that, that can write websites, exactly. the grid, for example. Uh, and you go so so if you in your position as the global thought leader you can actually ask the question and then hand over the task to an ai and right now you may be doing it with data scientists or people who can code but in the future they will that you will probably be handing over the task to a computer in some so in some right. sense but therefore the th the thinker or the person who can think outside the box or create a new box is is the one that will is probably got the most longevity in this disruption that we're going through. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you touched and and you actually did just touch on something I was going to be getting at too, which is I, I I viewed I viewed coding as a very mechanical role that could be could could be done by a robot basically or done by an artificial intelligence and it is being done now so i 100 percent agree with you that's one of the reasons i looked at it and said instead of teaching myself the code i want to take a little bit more of a 
of a thousand yard view on artificial intelligence and see where it's going and how it's impacting industries. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you on that viewpoint. But, 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 but even though, even say in the position of, as a thought leader, you know, AI is coming after that as well, isn't it? There's, there's lots of tools out there that are, are becoming more and more intelligent and, and probably making decisions that we wouldn't think of. Absolutely. Yeah. They're making decisions better than us. That's the reason hedge funds, the, 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 the 1% of the world, the, the big money hedge funds are, are putting all of their money into, uh, into artificial intelligence and machine learning analytics and programs to, to gauge sentiment on trades before earnings for corporate earnings and, and before uh, Fed speak on rates and before Trump comes out and does his tweets. They're, they're, they're gauging sentiment in the market. They're looking at tweets and, and, and all different kinds of RSS feeds and uh, social media channels and bringing all that together and making correlations to figure out where stock prices are going. So yeah, even, even now, even without that, we still have most of the trades in the stock market being done by machines. So in just a few years, yeah, it's all artificial intelligence. So what, so what happens, what happens to the, what happens to the person who's a hedge fund manager, right? The, you, you don't need them either because ultimately you're going to be able to just go online and say, I want robo advisor number one, and they'll do it better than a person will. Yeah. So, so that's, that's something I was going to ask you. So you mentioned Schwab, for example, what, what do you use those, those tools yourself? Uh, I do use Schwab. I don't use the trading tools. I make all the decisions on my own. They do have a robo-advisor platform. The closest thing I do to any kind of robo-advisor platform is like uh, the penny savings kinds of accounts, like through Acorns, where they have, they just save you a dollar a day kind of thing, and they have it all allocated for you. But I just like to know where my money is in general, and I like to know what I'm investing in. So I don't like handing my money over to anybody or anything. I like to know exactly what's going on with it. So that's the reason I tend to invest in individual companies rather than ETFs. Gotcha. And, and say, say, for example, your advice to somebody putting their money into a pension fund. So many people got stung in the past. No. I think I talked to somebody, one of my family members, about this recently. Pension funds are scary because there's, there's nothing really to guarantee you're going to get your money. And I know everybody says you're going to get your money and there are, you know, there, there are legal things and that say you're going to get your money and there are annuities in place that say you're going to get your money. But, but nobody says that you're going to get that paycheck at the end of the day. Just like when you invest in a 401k, nobody says that money is going to be worth more in 20 years than it is today. So at some point, people need to decide, is it more important for me to have a lot of money now and a pile of cash now so that I feel safe and secure? Or is it? am I safe having a 401k and not having that money right now? For, for a lot of young people, especially, I think it's a disservice done to them when it's advised that they get into 401ks and IRAs because that's money they can't touch until they're 59 or, or 60 years old. I think it's much more important for them to have a safe, secure uh, nest egg as a big pile of cash at home. Yeah. And, and actually, like, take a little bit of stress out of their life and pay off a little bit more of their mortgage. Like you were saying about that getting getting debt free. Well, right, because what happens, a typical student is going to say, hey, I have my nice corporate job now. I'm going to do the 401k. I'm going to do all that stuff. And they kind of contribute to that. And then their car breaks. And then they put the car break. They, they take their car repair on a, on a credit card. 
it, and, then, and then the whole time still contributing to our 401k that they're not going to ever be able to touch. So it's just, I think people need to totally switch their mindset. And this, this is a totally new era for everything, for, for, for money, to how you invest, to, to where you put your money. Um, all of it's totally open to a new thought process. I think the best day, the best thing we can do in this day and age is find people that you trust and, and, uh, people that have proven experience and just follow them. And in the, in the day, in the era of social media, it's not that hard to find influencers that have a, a, an opinion that you can agree with, or that makes sense to you. Gotcha. So, so because there's these, there's a, a, a definitive shift in patterns of how people are consuming. So we're moving towards a more sharing economy, uh, an experience economy, an ownerless economy. So people are, are preferring access over ownership to cars to even houses so and hence we're seeing the growth of ubers and airbnbs etc what's your take on those kind of shifts this is a really exciting trend i've been writing about recently too uh there's there's a there's a there's been a growing trend since the financial crisis quote ended um, in RV living and tiny house living. And it's been in a demographic that previously wasn't purchasing RVs and recreational vehicles. So speaking to the gig economy and the Uber and that kind of experience living rather than ownership living, the RV living trend and the tiny house living trend growing among uh, amongst the, the, millenni the millennials of the world is a really interesting trend to monitor. Um, and it's not just growing steadily. It's growing very, very quickly. I was uh, looking at some reports that uh, were put out just in the last few months talking about the explosion in sales amongst um, Winnebago and Thor Industries, which are two very large um, RV producers. Um, we can see a, a large growth in stock price for Camping World and other um, RV and tiny house living trend companies, which really ties to that whole experience living trend. And I also looked at and drew correlations between lithium producers, the lithium producing companies, um, and the RV living trend companies, which also says to me that perhaps the uh, those energy metals might be not only underestimated and undervalued, but that millennials understand the value of having large lithium batteries with that kind of RV living lifestyle, being off the grid and kind of beholden to no other person. Yeah. So you're yeah, you're absolutely right. People, if they have a house, are holding on to them forever, uh, and but they're not buying. Yeah, there's just not enough. There's not enough market. There's not enough um, housing. Um, um, there's not enough houses on market and they're too expensive for people to buy. Yeah, it's it's like, it's the same over in Europe, uh, Brian, because you're you're seeing this more and more and people are, are have people have been stung as well. So they they've obviously been stung, but this time it's been documented and they've been reminded of that movies like The Big Short come to mind that are just yep. kind of going don't do it. There's just, it's going to happen again or you know yep. or, or at least there's a little there's a reminders there that it, that it did happen and, and that it could happen again. But but I love the way and I and you know I really encourage people to follow you and and read your blog because oh, thank you. You, you you it's not about one thing. So it's it's like almost like a waterbed effect. You're watching. Well, if this happens over here, then this is the effect. And like you nailed it there with the lithium batteries. And then that always gets me thinking. Then when you have someone like Elon Musk and he's kind of going, okay. Well, this is going to happen. So, where is it going next? And it's the Wayne right. Gretzky quote of skating to where the puck is going, not where it is now. And with that in mind, 
you've you you've, you're also a futurist in the ag tech space because you see a huge shift happening here. Yeah. This is this is actually I think um if you have artificial intelligence as like the top technology for uh, leading disruption and blockchain is maybe the second, I would say ag tech, it would be the third. Uh, and I don't know exactly what order I would put those in, to be honest, because disruption to our global food systems is pretty important stuff to think about. Um, I would say that for, for ag tech, some of the, some of the interesting things that are happening is are that, even with climate change, people with climate change, people thought that production would be hurt, that yields would be hurt. And we saw that production areas have come down in farming because of climate change and because of urbanization. But production and yields have continued to go up because of GM crops. So the whole thing about climate change making it so that there's not enough food is not exactly right. But what is right is that Climate change has made it so that the food is grown in areas other than it used to be grown in some area in some ways, and different crops are grown so that food isn't getting to some places that it used to get to. So there's disruptions that are going to be coming in terms of the global trade, and then also continuing disruptions in how food is produced. So those climate change affected areas are really going to be getting into, and also um, um, smog laden areas like China are really going to be getting into um, hydroponics and vertical farming and farming and shipping containers and all kinds of really interesting agricultural innovations like that to get the maximum number of plants per meter harvested. Um, and interestingly, too, is that with food prices coming down, food prices for corn and wheat and soybeans are at the lowest they've been or nearly the lowest they've been in decades. We start to see companies losing money that don't usually lose money. Companies that are big agricultural traders like um, Archer Daniels Midland and Bungie are losing money. And we see that, well, I mean, their profits are way, way down. And we see that uh, there's mergers happening in, in ag tech that are really exciting, like Bayer and Monsanto. My, um, are going to be merging pretty soon here. Dow Chemical and Syngenta are, mer are merging. Um, so there's there's all these kinds of changes that are coming with this merger, uh, with all these different mergers. And the technologies that are coming out are way beyond what we had before with biotech and seed chipping and, and, the, and the GM crops. We have CRISPR now. Biotech is on a next level. And specifically in ag tech, we have cannabis getting into the picture now with, uh, with, with cannabinoids getting into pharmaceuticals and publicly traded companies like uh, GW Pharma and Care Therapeutics. Uh, doing all kinds of interesting ag tech innovation stuff with cannabinoids for pain therapeutics and um, other kinds of um, in interesting pain syndromes. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because that's the that's a shift that we're seeing. And there's, I mean, it's like with so many things, and I'm sure you look at this the whole time. Is where is regulation at? Because when the regulation shifts, it's even like with Uber, the, the problems they've had all over the globe trying with regulation around taxi drivers. But once that little blocker's gone. It's open market. Right. Yeah, it's it, it's tough to have. Uh, it, it's, I think technology is always one step ahead. Um, I know a lot of people are saying, for example, that we're not going to have flying cars in the next few years and things like that. But I think places like Dubai are pretty well set for that. And I think they even said they're going to have a flying taxi in the next year. Um, so I think we're going to start to see innovation hubs 
that are uh, like Dubai that are designed for IoT, they're going to start really attracting a lot of those innovators and those engineers that can that can really fully experiment with with the IoT technologies because we have a lot of infrastructure issues in the United States right now and and in Europe and some of the old country older countries that. Um, we're just not we're not ready for receiving all the innovations that are out there right now. Uh, we can look at the airline industry as a case in point. We have old technology abusing people <laughs> in the airline industry right now. When it be very when it, and the the reason is because the airline industry just doesn't want to upgrade the infrastructure. But yeah. we're at the point now where where all the global infrastructure needs to be totally rehashed with artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning. And like you said, once that happens, it's, 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 it's open season for cybersecurity. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Cause you see, you see with so many companies, all they're doing is putting lipstick on a pig and they're digitizing old, old models, old business models, old yeah. tech, you know, and this is a business model, right? Brian, I, I wanted to ask you about this one because Super cities, you mentioned about the amount of food being produced, et cetera, et cetera, because we're going to need that food. With people living longer, the gray dollar, the gray pound, gray euro, then you have advancements in, in, in health and technology and health. And then you have like the Kurzweil's of the world who are working on extending life indefinitely, you know, and then you're going, right. going well, we're late, we're move, and then urbanization you're, you're moving towards these mega cities and what's what's your take on that whole shift yeah you mentioned the issue with food and definitely urbanization happening all over especially in the emerging markets is, is becoming an issue uh china india africa are all going to be leading countries uh in uh, well, they already are leading countries in population, but they're going to be leading economic countries over the next few decades too, as as technology starts to to come into those places and and, and empower the people. Um, I would say the issue with food though is really interesting too, though, because as urbanization happens, farm makers naturally get reduced, and so then where does the farming happen? And then they end up going vertical. So we see cities in China now growing their uh, they're growing live cities or or their green cities where the city is uh, where the where the buildings are top to bottom or bottom to top plants and planted and even have plants and uh, trees up on the top of the uh, of the roof to help with smog issues and with, with heat and with uh, carbon dioxide and that way they can farm it so uh, vertical farming is really going to be the only solution um, to and uh, I think shipping container farming is a really interesting solution since I think the the analysis is that two acres of of cabbage or something like that can be grown in one shipping container at a time. So that's a really interesting application. So hydroponics and ag tech are going to be interesting uh, solutions for sure. But we are going to need more food. I mean, where's it going to come from? It, I, it's an interesting question. I think there's going to be um, alternative sustainable protein sources for sure. We talked about regulation, but the other one is the human desire to change and you know, you talk about cricket protein and, and this kind of shifts from meat. The real blocker to eating crickets is actually people. People, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just, and it's funny that you mentioned that people are the problem. I was just talking to my wife about this the other day. It's, you know, people are like, oh, so oil's dead, coal is dead. I'm like, is it really? But is it really? I know solar power could, could power the planet, but it's not going to because people aren't going to change. 
the agriculture is not going to change enough to save the planet either because people like meat. People want to eat cows and pigs. I mean, as much as I would, I, I think the sustainable protein thing like crickets and, and if, if everybody was okay just eating soybeans, we could have that as a nice protein source, we'd be fine. But it's just not how people are. And we see that in China, as the middle class comes up, they want more meat. They're getting away from some of the vegetables. And now as they have more money, they don't want GM crops anymore. They want organic soybeans for their soy oil. So it's just, it's just it's an attitude that comes with having a little bit more money. And as people get more money, I, I just think it's a universal law. People don't and don't change. They never have. And I think that's one of the interesting points, one of the interesting correlations I've been able to draw from the first, second, third, and fourth industrial revolutions is that the economic disruptions, the economic unrest that then ultimately led to warfare, none of it really had to happen. It's just that people don't change. And I think it's that's that's where we're at with this fourth industrial revolution is if everybody works well and works nicely with each other, it could be really awesome. But I think we should just expect people to continue to be human beings and not to really change. Brilliant. Well, Brian, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And I'd love to touch base with you again in a few months because you're coming out with some awesome content. As I said to our audience, check out BrianDCallwell.com for all your blogs and, uh, and indeed on Twitter, Brian, as well. Yes, sir. At Brian D. Cowell. Brilliant. Well, Brian, great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome back to the show CEO and founder of Smart Tech 247, Ronan Murphy. Welcome to the show, man. Hi, Aidan. How are you? Great to have you back amidst very busy times for yourself. So appreciate your time. Delighted to be back. <laughs> yeah. So we've just been through this massive malware attack and your business has been booming even since we spoke last time organically but also through some very clever moves by you uh, and we'll get that into into that in a second but we've just been in the in the wider global ransomware and, and malware attacks that we've had in the last few days it's bo absolutely booming and i know you're you're working all hours uh, that god sends but let's talk about again just remind our you our, our listeners of of your business run yeah, so so uh, you are right at the moment. It is a little bit of organized chaos, um, but we operate a, a very sophisticated security operation center that operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, delivering managed cybersecurity solutions into some of the leading companies in Ireland, in the UK, in mainland Europe and in North America. You had a really nice move recently with IBM. Let's tell our, our listeners about what happened there. Yeah, it's um, smarttech247.com became the first partner for IBM in the world to commercially launch Watson for cybersecurity. So we were um, heavily involved in the beta development of the of the platform. And for, for the listeners, Watson for cybersecurity is introducing the concept of cognitive technology or artificial intelligence into helping combat the ever-increasing challenge of, of cybercrime and cybersecurity. So that so from that perspective it's it's basically spotting patterns that would have been used before for, from attacks, etc. And it's basically fighting fire with fire. Um, it's even a little bit more sophisticated than that. If you look at the internet, um, all of the data that's available on the internet is, uh, the vast majority of it is what we would term as unstructured data. 
it's not it's not in a database format. So if you look at the security industry, the most valuable information that's put out in relation to attacks, for example, with the, the attack we're seeing now, it's coming on social media, it's coming on blogs, it's coming in white papers, it's coming in research data, and all of that data is unstructured and it doesn't feed in to a security operations center or into threat feeds that we can assimilate and make decisions around. So what Watson does is it takes all of that data in, it analyzes it as if it was as if it were a human being, and it makes determinations based on artificial intelligence. So it's constantly learning and evolving, and it's it, it it's essentially a supercomputer. It's like having fifty of the best analysts in the world sifting through mountains of data to find that needle in a haystack. So it's very very powerful. Yeah, and and it's it's so great that you're you're you've been chosen. I mean, globally. You know, a company from Cork. I know you're global presence anyway, but how did you manage that one? Yeah, um, I, I guess we are a very good strategic partner of IBM. We had been working um, very aggressively on building up, up our security operations center capabilities, but I very quickly identified that there was a major challenge for my business. And that challenge was that as we became more successful, we we needed to hire more analysts and we had to crunch more data and the volume of data being created was becoming overwhelming. Um, there's a term in our industry, which is, we call it alert fatigue. It's where our analysts were getting burnt out with the volume of data that they had to consume and the decisions they had to make around that data. So what Watson does is it consumes all of that data for our, our analysts and it, it comes to a determination which they can then use in their analysis. So it makes them an awful lot more efficient. That, and, and, and when I when I could when I knew that what that IBM were building this technology for cyber, they were very, very successful in the healthcare sector. I knew this was something we needed to um, get our hands on. So we're very lucky to get chosen to be part of the beta program. And, you know, we, we, we took the baton and we, we ran pretty, pretty quickly with it. Yeah. Um, and we were the first to market with it also, which is pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it must be one of the joys of being your own master in a way where you don't have a board of directors to, to kind of ha- have to go through or management to go through. Because I can imagine if you were sitting as a manager in a bigger firm, that you probably wouldn't get this over line because it would have been like, oh, wait, we have to have a meeting about that meeting. And it's it's one of the decisions you're like, yeah, this makes total sense as the CEO. Yeah, I think so. I, did, I, I think with cybersecurity, um, a lot of the times you have to be very nimble. You have to be able to turn quickly and make decisions fast. Um, t- time is money when it comes to cyber. So, um, yeah, it was the right call. Um, I, and I would say it's for, for the industry, it really is a game changer in terms of our ability to respond quicker. I would go so as so far as to say that our security operations center based in Ireland, even though we're expanding internationally, is now probably one of the most sophisticated security operations centers on planet Earth because we're leveraging this technology to give our customers more accurate um reports on the challenges that they're dealing with from from a cyber perspective yeah and we were talking earlier on in this show about brian d colwell about ai replacing jobs and and you had a very interesting take on this in that you thought 
bringing in Watson and bringing in AI would mean you'd be able to lean out the company a bit more, maybe you know, not have to hire so many humans. But that didn't turn out to be the case at all. No, it didn't. Um, yeah, obviously, as CEO, um, you know, I'm responsible ultimately for the bottom line. And if you can automate um, these processes, you, you, you'll you save on your, your wage bill. But it, it actually has meant that we are now hiring more staff. We have 15 unfilled vacancies at the moment. Um, and that's purely because of the, the service we're now delivering. We are doing it faster. We're doing it better. We're winning more business, and we're scaling as a result. Yeah. So it's um yeah it's it, it it's been very very successful. And it must be. I mean, having the access to Watson and, and that kind of power must mean that you can. You're not just going after the bigger fish anymore. You can actually now cater for SMEs and smaller businesses as well. Yes, we we've built a platform now that means that even mid-sized companies can leverage the world's leading technologies and we've made it extremely cost effective where they can even take it as a service in a SaaS based model. So, you know, this type of technology was previously out of the budget or the remit of these type companies. That is no longer the case. We now have it readily available and, and, and we're, we're, we're readily available to anywhere in the world from, you know, North America to Australia to mainland Europe. Yeah, and and with the world getting more and more connected, I mean, there's going to be more and more business for you. And we've just seen the WannaCry ransomware attack. Could you, from your world, would you, from your eyes, describe that? What happened? Yes. So um, I'm going. I'm going to debunk um, some of the rhetoric which has been. <clears throat> spoken about uh, regarding WannaCry in terms of it being highly sophisticated and, you know, this this really, um, uh, you know, sophisticated, uh, clever piece of software. So back at the, uh, the Easter bank holiday weekend, there is a, a hacking group called Shadow Brokers. And they essentially hacked a load of different tools that were being used by the, the NSA, the National Security Agency. And 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 the agency had a number of surveillance tools that they were using, and they were particularly geared for exploiting vulnerabilities in Microsoft Windows. Now, what Shadow Brokers did was they leaked all of those tools that were used for spying out onto the onto the dark web, and that was quite serious because those exploits. Once they were released to the to the dark web, hackers could then very, very quickly take them and exploit people who had not effectively patched their systems against them. Now, when I saw that happening, I went on 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 social media and I went on on national radio and I made the point that without any doubt that these exploits were going to be used in new forms of ransomware and in new forms of attacks against customers. They would just embed them into their existing software platforms. And this is the result of that of that that leak on the uh, on the Easter bank holiday weekend. So this was always going to happen. There was never a gray gray area about that. Yeah. So just to, I suppose for, for some of our audience who won't be au fait with what the dark web is, et cetera. So this is where 
the murky web that most of us that use, we use Google and, you know, Facebook is our, our, our gateways to the web, but there's an, a totally different gateway, Tor, dark web, where a lot of the murkier dealings of the web go on, but also people buy and sell data, buy and sell of a hell of a lot of other things, but also ransomware, etc., gets put up even open source effectively. Correct, correct. So... So what happened was, because I, I remember reading this about Edward Snowden mentioned that this, that the NSA had actually created these tools. And then these tools were actually the ones that, like you said, were basically used uh, against, uh, used for a different reason than they were meant to be in the first place. Yeah, they were, they were used for surveillance. Yeah. Now, they, they, here's, here's where the problem starts. After that leak, that data leak took place, um, Microsoft released software patches, which are essentially fixing the weakness in your software to stop um, that vulnerability being exploited. So anyone who is now a victim of Wanna, WannaCry um, ransomware, it's because they didn't do their housekeeping and they did not patch their systems. Yeah, because this is really, this is what I thought was really interesting. And it's probably something you say constantly in your business and, and all those people working for you are constantly saying there is an onus on you as the user to update your systems because that's in your control. Yes, we'll give you the infrastructure and the architecture to do it, but there is a lot of onus on you. And so many of us overlook those things the whole time and just expect everything to be okay until something like this happens. Yes, so so um, I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a breaking news story now, but it it's we've we've already seen chatter on the dark web about four hours ago, and um, it's Tuesday at ten. Just to yeah. our listeners, because this will go out on, on tomorrow night, Wednesday night. So so the criminal hacking groups in the underworld they've already repurposed the second classified cyber weapon, and it was one of the dumps from Shadow Brokers. Um, and it, 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 it's going to be very, very similar to the, the WannaCry attack, and it's called Esteem Audit. So that's that's now already available on the dark web. And what that's going to do is it's going to hack remote desktop connections into corporate networks. So, so the remote workers are going to be the ones that are vulnerable next. Yes. So it's 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 going to target TCP and RDP and. Um, it's, it's, it's called Esteem Audit. How do we protect ourselves if we can from that? It's patching. It's right. patching. You know, it's it's all day long. It's going to be installing the updates, hardening the system. And there's a whole pile of other ones, Aiden, that are going to come out over the next uh, 30 to 60 to 90 days. Yeah, so these basically this NSA library is available. And, right. Yeah, so, okay, we're going to see lots and lots of more. And that's why we saw that chatter over the weekend about, you know, update, expect more on Monday, all this kind of stuff, yeah? Yes, indeed, indeed. Okay. So, so here's another one. I told you about this uh, before we came on air. It was I've written a blog, and uh, you know, I I paint this kind of uh, almost the story of Terminator, and and that the next war will be this. What we're seeing now, where you can actually shut hospitals down, you can shut everything down, and you know, when everything becomes connected, the world becomes this giant brain, and if the power of that brain falls into the wrong hands, we can be in a, in a quite a difficult place. And what's your, what's your view on that? Because you, you 
are a key player in that world in a way because you're you're warning people against the connectivity of the world the whole time and so many people are just totally oblivious to it uh, my view on it is that what what we are seeing with WannaCry or what you're going to see with Esteem Audit or what you're going to see with at least a dozen other NSA tools that are being worked on for new cyber weapons is that the only reason that they are successful is because companies are not uh, conducting due diligence in terms of their own housekeeping. They're not taking cybersecurity seriously. That's that's a huge problem. Um, their users of their systems are not being educated to the challenges. Um, and that that's the that ultimately that's the biggest problem. If if you take this these type of um, challenges or these type of the, the, these malware um, technologies, the vast majority of them, 90, I would say 98% of them can be stopped relatively easy if organizations are on top of their game in terms of housekeeping and training. Yeah. There is 2%, which is the more sophisticated hacking that takes place. And that's very much aimed at large financial institutions with a view to stealing money. And it's aimed at retail organizations to get to their their payment card gateways. But that, you know, that is not that's not a tsunami like this more basic attack that you're seeing. Yeah, it's more targeted. And we talked about that on, on the last time you were on the show as well. Yeah, indeed. It's, indeed. It's, it's fascinating stuff. And I know I, I know um, hopefully we'll cross paths as the show is going to be based in New York for the summer. And I know you're, you're doing a few events over there, Ronan. So. Look forward Indeed. to catch up for a, for a local brew over in New York. Absolutely, I look I look forward to it, my man. There's going to be a lot of uh, water under the bridge for you. You're going to be very red eyed the way uh, ransomware is going at the moment. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's um, it's it's good for business, I guess, but um, at the same time, it's not it's not nice for the companies who've experienced it, and for a lot of them, hindsight is wonderful because you know something very small like installing patches. And following best practice could really easily um, deal with these type of threats that they're seeing. Ronan, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Always great to have you on the show. Ronan Murphy, CEO and founder of SmartTech247.com. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aidan. Have a good one. Bye. Thanks, man.